This is Bloomberg Business Week from Bloomberg Radio. Hi, I'm Jason Kelly. And I'm Carol Masser. Welcome to the Bloomberg Business Week weekend podcast. As you know, it's a double issue. So we've got some more stories from the issue that's currently on newsstands and online. Uh, I love it. There's so many deep dives into different companies. One has to do with Amazon. What's going on at that company? They're spending a ton of money on lobbying efforts in the nation's capital, also locally, but it's not necessarily having the impact that they thought it might. Also going to talk a little bit about Warby Parker. It's a company Mm -hmm. that we followed for a long time. Austin Carr wrote that story. We had an interesting conversation with him. And so it's another thing for you to feast on in this post-Thanksgiving edition. They're eyeing a new business. How do you like that? Oh, boy. The puns. The puns are fast (laughs) and furious. Also, one of my favorite stories, you might be thinking about traveling. You may be Mm -hmm. traveling right now. Amtrak, uh, they've got a challenging road ahead of them, as it were, a new CEO. And man, he means business. Plus, Google at war. It's the cover story. The search giant wants the military business, but many of its employees do not. All right. That's a great story and a very good deep dive. But first up, private equity continuing to look for ways to put massive amounts of money to work could lead to the biggest leverage buyout of all time. We're talking about KKR and Walgreens. 2019 has been an interesting one when it comes to deals in the public and private markets. And there's one that's out there in the news that combines both markets. We're talking about KKR uh, approaching drugstore giant Walgreens Boots Alliance about a deal to take the company private. It would be the biggest ever leveraged buyout. Well, as you know, I'm obsessed with this story I for know so many reasons and very proud of the team here at Bloomberg for breaking news on this continuously. Mm-hmm. It's a fast moving story, we should point out. But we wanted to take a step back with Nabila Ahmed because... She has some great insights in the magazine this week about how this all came about and maybe what it means for the broader market. She's here with us in New York City. So, wow, or as Carol Master would say, whoa, (laughs) this is potentially a huge deal. The fact that we're even talking about it seems important. How did this all, how do we get here? I think we traveled back in time and it's 2007, guys. So true. We've gone back in time. Look, how did we get here? As we know, private equity has so much money to put to work. I think it's something like more than $2 trillion now, just in the past couple of years. It's crazy money, yeah. It's doubled so much money. So they're looking at increasingly bigger and more complicated deals to sort of have a bit of an edge, at looking at industries that they know about, looking at companies they have already worked with. And this is where Stefano Pessina comes in. He is the CEO of Walgreens, and he is an incredible maverick, an incredible deal maker. He started off with a struggling, one single struggling drug wholesaler in Naples in 1970s. Uh, it's a shop that his dad gave him to fix it. And he fixed that business. Then he went on to fix his dad's friend's businesses. Then he expanded to Spain and France and the UK. And now he is leading the biggest drugstore retailer in the world. How did he get there, though? That's interesting. She talk, talk about really starting kind of at, you know, ground level, the ground level here. And how did he get, though, to the point where he was involved with Walgreens and also Boots? So he sold his UK company to Alliance Boots, and then he did a deal with KKR to take that company private. Eventually, they went on to buy Walgreens here in the US. And they have actually made over the nine-year association, him and KKR, out of that um, deal have made three times their money. They started off with $2.1 billion. So it's gone well. They made $7 billion for their investors. It's yeah. gone really, really well. And so it's no surprise then that when KKR dealmakers are looking around and saying, mm-hmm. oh, what's out there to buy? We got this pot of money. Uh, what do we know? What might be a little bit undervalued, maybe not distressed quite, but certainly uh, not distressed, exactly. (laughs) If not distressed, a little bit stressed. Uh, And this is a guy we know, uh, KKR, well known for sort of cultivating these managers. I guess now that we've dealt with the equity side, let's go to the debt side because the leverage and a leverage buyout means you got to borrow, in this case, tens and tens of billions of dollars. Is that even possible? That's the thing. Analysts are saying that you're going to need about $50 billion. Five zero. Five zero of debt for this company. Not for no reason is it the biggest buyout in history, would it be? 
And there are questions about whether that can actually be raised in the leverage loan market, which has traditionally been the market where M&A buyouts are funded, because people are starting to kind of push back. Mm -hmm. In the past few months, you've seen the single B rated, which is where most M&A loans are rated. People are selling those off because people are starting to get a bit worried about riskier assets. And they're gravitating more towards investment grade. So if they were to do this deal, they would have to do a some kind of financial engineering, Mm -hmm. some kind of uh, cool, clever things to make it happen. Well, and I do wonder, do they have to pull in somebody else to help get that deal done? You know, so that maybe pulls in something on the equity side or something. Like, would they need to? Could they pull in another person beyond KKR? We know that other private equity firms had also looked at Walgreens. So there are probably others out there who could potentially partner with them. Could. Doesn't mean they would. Exactly. (laughs) Um, They're also, we know, have been talking to their LPs, so their fund investors, about going in with them. Because, you know, pension funds and sovereign wealth funds also have a lot of money to put to work. So there are a lot of people looking at this deal. You know, I think they would need about $30 billion of equity as well as the $50 billion of debt. Yes. The other thing I think about is what happens to Walgreens? Even if Great this question. deal doesn't work out, right? They need to do something, it seems like. Yeah, they are definitely stressed. They are under so much pressure on a number of different fronts. They tried to do this buyout of Rite Aid a couple of years ago. They weren't able to do the deal at full scale that they wanted to do. So they're now closing some stores. They said that they're going to cut about $1.8 billion over the next couple of years. That's an annual save. So they're having to really scramble mm-hmm. to figure out what's next. And that's Nabila Ahmed. Great to catch up with her. She's on the m and yeah. The deals beat. And man, this one has really caught people's attention. The size, the scope, the names involved. Fascinating. Pretty remarkable. We'll see how it ends up. Spending heavily on lobbying efforts in Washington, check. Lobbying more U.S. government entities than any other technology company. Yep, they've got that one covered, too. Lobbying locally. Jason, they're doing that as well. They're doing it all. Well, Amazon, we're used to them being ubiquitous yes, and we comprehensive are. in many ways. Eric Newcomer is here with us. He's got a great story in this week's edition mm-hmm. of the magazine. It's about Amazon on K Street, the famous lobbying <laughs> corridor there, uh, hasn't gone so well right. and they, also they, hasn't gone so well in some of these local races. Right. So they, they spend a ton of money on lobbying, you know, $4 million in a quarter. I think they lobbied more than on more issues than any tech company last year. They spent about $1.5 million just on their local Seattle race. So Amazon is flooding politics with money. But then, you know, as I document in the story, has a lot of problems, like issue to issue, just really struggling sort of with this tech clash and to to win the political battles with all that money. So is it the company at large has problems or are there a few individuals who really have some problems? Well, the company as a business obviously is doing great. But then, you know, Jay Carney runs, you know, former Obama press secretary, runs this huge policy shop with his deputy, this guy, Brian Huseman, former Republican administration, Federal Trade Commission lawyer. And, and together they've really tried to staff up so they're ready to fight. And so on a lot of issues, you know, whether it's like trade wars, you know, they have somebody in talking to the administration trying to lobby. But then on some of these bigger, more iconic issues, you know, we talk about the move to New York. We could talk about Seattle. We could talk about this huge Jedi contract where Amazon mm-hmm. was competing to win a $10 billion government contract. And then Microsoft came out of nowhere and took it from them. So so Amazon has had just a lot of trouble on the policy front. Well, and it's interesting, too, because you document very well – a number specifics. of these cases, which you which you just described in brief, but what strikes me too is that on paper it looks like they did all the right things. Right. They hire a big time Democrat, mm-hmm. they hire a big time Republican, they've got the team in place, and then and this feels very 2019. It's a bunch of unforced errors in, in a lot of ways that ultimately sort of set them back. Tell us about that. Right. So if we take you know Jay Carney, this very polished communicator. I think coming, you know, he's hired during the Obama administration when it seems like Hillary Clinton might win again. Amazon takes, you know, responding to Trump tweets, a sort of almost hostile posture towards Trump. Then Trump's this is elected. during the campaign. Exactly. Yeah. During the campaign. And then Trump's elected. And so they, Bezos and Trump have this very negative relationship, partially because Bezos owns the Washington Post. Then they have a Democrat as their chief sort of spokesman. So that's a challenge. And then Time passes and Carney has now more recently given an interview where he suggested that there weren't any patriots working in the Trump administration, unlike the Obama and Bush administrations, which he apologized for. He made this really bad tweet about 
uh, umpires during the national games, which he had. so he's just had some challenges as sort of the public voice of Amazon. And then the other character is this guy, Brian Huseman, who's sort of the inside operator. And he staffed up this team, but there's just been a lot of drama internally. Well, and that's what's interesting because, right, the, you're seeing the drama play out within the company as well. So they've done apologies externally as well right. as having to uh, apologize to everybody inside as well. Right. So with and people Car- questioning <laughs> what they're doing. Exactly. You know, with Carney, he, he, he wrote an email titled Self-Criticism to his staff, just talking about the umpire tweets, reflecting that he's not just some you know guy out on Twitter. He reflects this global powerhouse of a company. And and can I just, can I read that tweet? Um, Calling the umpires quote, a bunch of overweight, diabetic, half blind geriatrics. He ended his tweet with a call to bring in the machines. Right. And, and, you know, obviously the first half is what everyone is upset about, but then for a company that's accused all the time of automation, it's just very strange to be hitting a message of, you know, automating out the umpire. Like in every way, the tweet is just odd. Where's Jeff Bezos on all of this? I mean, these are his, yeah, key people here. I mean, he's, you know, very behind the scenes. And I think given his ownership of the Washington Post has wanted to take a more, you know, confrontational or at least sort of strong position against Trump. And, and you know, that, that he's picked Carney to sort of be his guy. Right. But, but Bezos is very behind the scenes. I mean, it's it's hard to know exactly what a CEO is thinking about, you know, the small sort of the infighting within his D.C. office. And so, Eric, widen the aperture for us a little bit, because you look across the tech landscape, you understand how these companies work, not just Amazon, but, you know, the whole array, I guess, of social media companies, tech companies, who all of a sudden really have to care more about Washington, in part because Washington is all of a sudden caring a lot about them. And maybe not in a good way. Yeah, I'm growing tired of the phrase, but we're in a tech clash, yeah. right? That's what, and there's you know an <laughs> antitrust investigations, the Federal Trade Commission, the Department of Justice, the House Judiciary Committee, state attorneys general. You know, everybody is investigating big tech companies, including Amazon, into antitrust. So Democrats and Republicans exactly. are all so in on this. They're the punching bag, and so that's the situation Amazon faces. You know, in my story, I talk about a lobbyist who, uh, you know, has a generally positive view of Amazon, sort of defending them, saying, you know, some of the problems are just they've, you know, grown so much. I think they doubled sort of the lobbying staff over the last three years. So that's part of the reason. But he says, Amazon might have trouble, but they're doing better than Google and Facebook. (laughs) And, And I think that is a sort of fair defense. You know, I don't dig in to Google and Facebook. That's a whole nother dive. But there is a general sense that the tech companies in general are struggling to respond. To right, the because as much as the president himself has gone after Jeff Bezos, mm-hmm. we haven't seen Jeff Bezos testifying on Capitol Hill. Right. We have seen Mark Zuckerberg right. and Sheryl Sandberg. Right. You know, so there is this element right. that despite some of the headwinds that you describe that maybe they're doing OK. Yeah. Maybe. <laughs> well, I'm, and some of the problems on so, a relative basis. <laughs> yeah, I think definitely when it comes to testifying in front of Congress, in general, sort of pol- uh, sort of congressman uh, animosity towards the CEO, Mark Zuckerberg is yeah. <laughs> winning that fight, and Bezos looks a lot better. But you know, Amazon has a lot of has had a lot of problems, like in Seattle, yes. in New York. So they're not all sort of the federal like election type problems that Facebook has had. But I do think about as these big tech companies look to broaden out their revenue streams, you know, the cloud and particularly playing into those government contracts, those are big deal contracts. And I mean, I think about our audience, investors, I mean, they're watching this to see whether or not they're able to make some inroads. Right. And, you know, JEDI, this defense department contract, isn't just about that $10 billion deal. It's sort of, that's what's getting you in deeper with the Defense Department. And so I don't think it's just that amount of money. It's significant, but Amazon is a... 870-something billion dollar market cap company, you know, but it's about the long-term relationship. That's Eric Newcomer. Love this story about what Amazon is up to. They're spending heavily in lobbying efforts in Washington. They're lobbying more U.S. government entities than any other tech company. But it's interesting, Jason, it doesn't seem to be paying off. It's not working at all. You're exactly right, Carol. And this is coming at a time where the relationship between Washington and Silicon Valley, in the words of Facebook, it's complicated. Jason, you had me at you're exactly right. (laughs) So, Carol, I caught up with the co-founders of Adams. You see me wear their sneakers. Yes, I have. I wanted to know the story underneath it. And I have to say, 
it is even more fascinating than I thought. It's a husband and wife team, Wakas Ali and Sidra Kasim. They met in their village in Pakistan. They came to Brooklyn via Y Combinator. It's so cool. Here's your conversation. All right, so this is a shoe that I really like. I have to say, I'm a bit of a sneakerhead, and I love the the different feel and just the whole different vibe of this shoe. So I'm a little biased coming into this interview. Uh, Wakas, I want to start with you because the story of this company, Pakistan Y Combinator, Brooklyn. How did that happen? Um, it's a, it is a kind of crazy story, and we did not intended it to be like this when we were starting off. We had no idea. Uh, we started our first shoe company in in our hometown in Pakistan, Ukada, And then we kept going. It was a small project, became a Kickstarter project. Then we applied into Y Combinator, first shoe company to get into Y Combinator, first company from Pakistan to get into Y Combinator. And in 2015, we moved to the U.S. Uh, in San Francisco. And so, Sidra, why do you think the pitch resonated so much? There are a lot of firsts there. Uh, what was it about this particular company that you think caught the interest of Y Combinator and ultimately a lot of big-name investors? Yeah, so this company is not part of Y Combinator. Our previous shoe company ah, was part of Y Combinator. I got it. Okay. But uh, I think the, uh, the exciting thing is that this shoes is not just a shoes. This is a very, very personal shoes. Like... Very comfortable, very durable, very breathable, and as well as the fit is very precise for you. And uh, like when we were inviting our friends uh, to try on the first sample, and I still remember like their impressions, like they were super, super excited to try on the shoes. And we started this as a very small project, and uh, somehow like it started becoming bigger and bigger. And so what was the imp- inspiration, Wakas, for, for this particular shoe? So we were making and selling dress shoes already. We, we, and when we were in Pakistan, we had no idea that people are actually more, mainly wear sneakers every day. They don't wear dress shoes as much. Even that trend is declining. Even you are wearing your atoms right now. Absolutely. So we noticed that. And then we were like, hey, we, want, we both are very passionate about product, particularly in shoes. It's one of the hardest products to ever make. Shoes are very difficult. Uh, and we were like, hey, can we make a shoe that people would want to wear every day? Not that we want to sell. Can we build a shoe that people would want to wear every day? And that is where this idea of a casual very, very simple. All the products we wear every single day, they tend to be very simple. Right. Still extremely, extremely comfortable. We were going after the the best of the best in the industry after Nike and Adidas and Comfort. Uh, and we only make one shoe. So we put a lot of effort into the, the precision sizing, the quarter sizing, the comfort of the shoes, the laces, how how high or how uh, how small something is. Like this midsole, it took us six months to work on that to just make it more comfortable than the Adidas Ultra Six Boost. months on the midsole. On the midsole, yeah. It was very. It, it was one of the hardest things because if you only make one shoes and your pitch is that you are going to wear it every day, when you make just one product, you can't just like compromise on that. You have to get it right. Otherwise, right. you have no business, right? Right, of yeah. course. Yeah. And so why is manufacturing so difficult for shoes, Cedric? Because this is something you've worked on for a long time. You've worked in Korea, I believe, right. uh, on that particular aspect of the business. Why are shoes so difficult? I think one of the most important reason is you have all your body weight on the shoes. And then shoes actually go into different environment. Like you sit in the office with different sitting positions. Some uh, people, they stand a lot. Some people, they walk a lot. So basically, shoes is not just like a, a simple product like your handbag where you store things. Shoes is something which basically you carry on throughout the day from morning to evening. So that's why like making a product which is basically accommodate you throughout the day and as well as super comfortable is very hard to make. I guess I'd never really thought about that. I mean, there's a lot of physics involved, I guess, in our interaction with shoes in a way that we don't have with a lot of other products. So why do you think, especially having been in the dress shoe business and now in the sneaker business, why are sneakers having such a moment? What costs? Mainly it is because of a lot of cultural icons are the face of this movement. That is one part. America especially and world in general is becoming more and more passionate because we have so many young people coming into the world these days and right. they, are, they are not hesitant. They are not hesitant about ideas. They are not hesitant about movement. They are not hesitant about their interest or passion about certain celebrities or 
icons or whatever we want to call them. So that is like what we, we learned. We actually have a name for our customer called the new creative. And these are people who are very considerate about what they buy, where they right. buy it from, uh, what it, things look like. And every brand like Nike and Adidas, they champion it with sportsmanship. And now we are seeing a lot more uh, entertainment, a lot more lifestyle. And that's Wakas Ali and Sidrik Kasim, the husband and wife team mm-hmm. behind Adams. It was so cool to catch up with them. I have to say, I love their sneakers. I wanted to meet them. I really didn't know what to expect. Right. And it was an amazing story. Great story, Jason. And I love the backstory, too, about this company and these two individuals. It's this week's Bloomberg Business Week Extra podcast. So check it out, everyone. Google, the early years, all about the company's search engine, all about online advertising, and yet the company hitting middle age, Jason. So it's looking for some different revenue streams. Well, we talk a lot about sort of existential questions Mm -hmm. around companies. I feel like this story hits at Google's in in a lot of ways. Don't be evil. That was back in the day. (laughs) And now in the business with the military, trying to figure out what they're going to be, as you say, in middle age and as they get uh, (laughs) more and more grown up. Joshua Brucine here with us. It's a terrific story. And I love the headline. It had me from that. Google and the generals. (laughs) Tell us about this intersection that this tech company, Silicon Valley, is having with the military industrial complex. Sure. So we tell the story of Google's basically tortured relationship with the Pentagon. We really saw this come out into the public view um, early last year when Google employees began objecting to what had been a secret military program called Project Maven Mm -hmm. to use um, advanced artificial intelligence technology to analyze drone imagery. Um, And so this was a program that uh, drones gather an immense amount of video. Uh, Actually, analysts watch it for the most part. And the Pentagon said if we could have some sort of automated analysis that would just tell them which parts to watch, that would be useful. Google was one of the companies who was helping with this. Some of its employees said that seems like we're getting too close to building weapons and basically broke out into this huge public spat. And Google backed out, right? And eventually Google decided not to renew its work on the contract yet and stopped working on it earlier this year. Well, it's interesting. And I think it speaks to the kind of tortured relationship that Google has with the government. Like we were talking in the newsroom about how for such a long time, Silicon Valley, big tech were kind of proud to kind of, you know... um, Tell Washington to kiss off. Basically. Thank you very much. (laughs) And now they're embracing Washington, right? Because they are looking for new business lines, particularly AI or the cloud. They want to be more involved. Yeah, I think what's interesting here is you have this very sort of visceral um, reaction to a specific military program. Mm -hmm. I think uh, defense work makes a lot of people uncomfortable. Um, But if you look a little bit below that, you also see another transition happening at Google that is making people at the company uncomfortable, which is it's moving, it's trying to supplement its consumer business, the search engines, the email, all based on advertising, with a cloud computing business. And that means basically entering into specific Um, relationships with large institutions and helping them analyze their data and do something with it. And so talk to us about Google specifically in this case, because as as Carol sort of set up the conversation, we do go back to this, you know, kind of ragtag startup back in Silicon Valley. I mean, it was in many ways the quintessential, Mm. you know, sort of you know, university dropout, create this company that changes the world type situation. But as it's grown up, it's really had to wrestle with its own image and its own values uh, in a lot of ways. And a lot of those came to the fore in the Project Maven uh, protest. But this hasn't really died down that much in many ways. These discussions are still pretty fierce within the company. Absolutely. I think in comparison to other large tech companies, Google has always kind of been the most extreme case of this Silicon Valley idealism. Mm -hmm. Uh, I think, you know, that a lot of the work the company does is actually just kind of academic research. Um, Its original mission was to organize the world's information. Uh, You know, it initially even uh, was... Um, concerned about maybe even going into advertising. Uh, it really just wanted to do the tech. Uh, eventually, it kind of got over that. And obviously, the <laughs> yeah. advertising is you know the comp- the business right now. Um, but you do see it's moving into new businesses and challenging its own assumptions at a time that sort of the 
Silicon Valley's culture generally is being challenged in many ways. But it's interesting because I feel like different members of big tech and Silicon Valley in particular are challenged differently. In other words, Microsoft gets a big government cloud contract and it seems to be okay. But Google gets involved and there's a lot of pushback internally from its employees and I even think publicly. So what's the difference? How are we breaking out big tech in terms of their you know, relationships and involvement with uh, the government? And yeah. particularly defense. Well, so you, I think Microsoft is actually a pretty good contrast. There's, I think, two differences between Google and Microsoft. I think the first is an internal difference, which is that Google has always had this culture where they kind of debate everything. There's a series, there's a long history of these message boards mm-hmm. where like everything came up for kind of rigorous debate. Right. Microsoft, a very buttoned up company, it's top down. And then the second thing, uh, to allude to your point about sort of the way the public looks at them, you know, Microsoft has kind of receded as a real consumer-facing company. Most of its business has been in enterprise computing mm-hmm. lately. Yeah. Google is like one of the things we think about as the internet. So when people, um, you know, people use Google search every day and then they think, wait, they're building weapons or you know, right. they're hearing, you know, they're building military something. And that makes people uneasy in a way. It doesn't maybe with companies that have that are not in their day to day, you know, consciousness. Well, and I want to go back to something you said a minute ago, because it really sort of flips this around in a really interesting way. And it ties to another story I believe you were involved in in the magazine this week around Amazon and its lobbying and, you know, trying to find its way in a much more complicated nation's capital in a lot of ways, mm-hmm. and a nation's capital filled with lawmakers, regulators, and politicians who are a little more skeptical about tech than they were 10 years ago. So how does that play into the decision-making at Google when you have antitrust investigations and this sort of skepticism and, dare I say, tech lash? Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> and you mentioned that Amazon is also in a very difficult, although I think different yes. uh, situation. For Google, what happened was uh, it publicly rejected the military. I don't think that was its intention. It certainly wasn't its leadership's intention, but it did it. Yeah. And Google has a lot of enemies um, on the right who saw this as an opportunity to attack the company as being unpatriotic, especially because it does some work in China. Um, I think there was some genuine Mm -hmm. confusion and outrage within the Pentagon. Uh, You saw senior military officials criticizing a commercial company, which is not usual. And Google has basically spent the last year backpedaling, trying to reassure the government and the military specifically that, hey, no, we're willing, we're good actors here, we're willing to work with you. I I get the feeling that within the Pentagon, that has been working. Interesting. But within the political class, not as much. But it's interesting you say, Joshua, that they're backpedaling, but they're also courting big time, right? The U.S. government and the Defense Department. Oh, yeah, they, I think... Google wants in. Yeah, the the uh, the format of backpedaling is to say, oh, we're backpedaling, we'll take your contracts, which <laughs> yeah. is what they want anyway. So it is kind of a self-serving backpedal, if you will. And so what do you make of the current state of the internal debate at mm-hmm. Google? You yeah. talk to a lot of people there. As you say, the message board's still pretty lively. There has been some action taken against employees around media leaks and and other elements here. It still feels unsettled when it comes to the internal politics of the company. It's definitely unsettled. Google has been in a very contentious uh, relationship with some faction of its workforce. Um, You've seen uh, action taken against internal activists, mostly for doing things like accessing um, information that company's leadership said was confidential. Um, And you see the company really not wanting to back down um, like it did with Maven. And at the same time, you see people within the company um, who want to shape its future trying to extend beyond military contracting Mm -hmm. into things like border contracts, Mm -hmm. even into things like dealing with the oil and gas industry. So there is a real tension going on there where both sides are trying to kind of claim as much ground as they can in their own internal debate. How important is all of this in terms of branching out and being more involved in government contracts important for Google's future? So I think that Google sees cloud computing as a big part of its future. Um, Right now, it is clearly in third place behind Amazon and Microsoft. The actual government contracts are big. 
uh, this big cloud computing contract, Jedi, which Microsoft just won is $10 billion. That's big, but it's not really big in the big, the large scheme of cloud computing contracts. I think what Google is hoping is to if it could win some government contracts, it's sort of a sign of confidence mm-hmm. for the rest of the market that, right. hey, we can do the serious work. Right. And that's really what it wants to do here. Well, and what's interesting is you talk about Google's history that they should have been in this market early on, correct, in terms of the cloud. They understood what was going on very early on. Yeah, absolutely. If you look at what cloud computing is, it's basically being good at building large data centers, which they Google's been doing. and being the best at artificial intelligence software that can take an enormous amount of data, analyze it, and do something with it. Now, that's Google's specialty. Um, For whatever reason, it has fallen behind some of its key competitors, and I think that stings. That's Joshua Brewstein on our cover story, Google at War. It's Google looking to expand their revenue streams, but it's not going to be so easy, especially when you've got employees internally not happy about it. Yeah, that internal strife, I think, is one of the most Mm -hmm. fascinating aspects of all of this, and really a window into Silicon Valley right now, and it's very complicated relationship with Washington and even itself. It's not your father's or grandfather's Wall Street, that's for sure. And get ready for even more changes as trading firms look to get into gaming and sports betting markets. Jason, we know the world, the financial world, is definitely changing. Well, it's trading firms, it's exchanges mm-hmm. as well. This came up in a conversation we had not too long ago with Adina Friedman right. over at the NASDAQ. Annie Massa is here with us, taking us into the world of sports and exchanges and trading. So what'd you find? Wall Street firms are dipping a toe in the water of sports betting. And it's an interesting time right now because a federal ban on sports betting was lifted in the U.S. last year. And you're starting to see about 13 states legalizing the practice with more potentially to come. And you've got a couple of different kinds of firms looking for ways in. This is so interesting because I think about how many conversations we had with our sports team about this. They were all looking forward you know, to the ruling and what it meant for online betting firms. But I didn't really think about the potential for Wall Street firms benefiting from it as well. And that's what this is about. Exactly. There is some overlap for certain types of firms. The most obvious example is that NASDAQ has licensed some of its exchange technology to horse race markets in Hong Kong and Australia and Sweden. It's a trading platform, right? Exactly. It's a trading platform. And as they were saying... There's no need to reinvent the wheel when it comes to handling large volumes of transactions on these kinds of markets. And um, they recently also licensed uh, matching engine technology to a UK-based sports betting platform where you can um, own stakes in players. So that's one way that um, a Wall Street firm is getting into this business. So talk to us about who is the most Mm -hmm. interested and, from your perspective, most interesting uh, name here. Well, one really compelling um, case that we go into in the story is um, Susquehanna, which has created a sports betting division um, operating out of Dublin right now. And they're betting on the outcomes of U.S. sports games. But um, the idea is to kind of almost make markets, make two-sided markets on online exchanges uh, that exist in the U.K., for example. And it's interesting because there are some parallels there. Just as they operate in as a market maker in financial markets, they can do a similar thing in sports betting markets, too. And I think about the potential. I mean, people, the sports betting market, it's a huge one, right? So this is potentially a big revenue stream for some of these financial firms, potentially. Potentially. Uh, it's not it? as big as uh, financial as other financial markets, which I think will actually limit its growth. Some okay. of the projections are all over the place for how big this could be in the U.S., but we found projections that it could be about $17 billion, which if, if you uh, think okay. for, for huge uh, market making or hedge fund firms, that's not gigantic. So who's likely to get involved? So we're not talking about your big Wall Street firms, potentially, right? Who, you know, we mentioned Susquehanna. Who else might get involved? It seems like a niche opportunity for expert market makers where Mm. you could leverage some of your technology in these kinds of places. When you think about this more broadly, this is coming at a time. This is what you look after every day. Your primary person looking after BlackRock and a number of the big money managers Folks are looking for different ways to make money right now. We mm-hmm. had a conversation with a longtime Wall Street guy, former broker, who was saying, look, these guys are going to make money somewhere, especially in the age of zero fees. Yeah, so that's why I think that you're seeing different kinds of firms looking for ways in. While I could never really see in the immediate term like a BlackRock getting into sports betting, on the brokerage side, there are some interesting opportunities. And both TD Ameritrade and Interactive Brokers have some sports betting-related projects in the works. 
I don't know. I'm thinking as investors, like what should we be watching out for? What kind of you know developments should we anticipate are coming in the new year? Well, on the in- individual investor side, TD Ameritrade has said that they're exploring ways into this market. Interactive Brokers is kind of an interesting case where they have a platform that they run that's all kind of a game of sports betting, but you can't. You have the potential to earn um, free credits and trading commissions. I will say I'm not sure how that has changed in the aftermath of the yeah. fee wars, where you have commissions going to zero but you have opportunities to um, win some real returns and, uh, of some kind. And um, I think the whole idea there is to expose their users to yeah. the concept. If you think about it, these brokerages have these platforms with users existing who might right. yeah, who might want to participate in some way. So they're looking for a, a way into. Well, and it does feel like there are a couple sort of megatrends here. I mean, one mm-hmm. is sort of gamification, yes. right? I mean, people love betting for a lot of obvious reasons. They've yeah. loved it for centuries, right. Right. Uh, literally, Just because it, it ties right, right. ties yeah. to, to lots of different games. But also this idea that these companies, these firms want broader, deeper, more meaningful, and ultimately more profitable relationships with their customers. And so if you can give mm-hmm. them another reason to hit the app or hit the website, I mean, I don't know if anybody actually like calls their broker anymore, but you know, to <laughs> no, extend right. and deepen that relationship, it would make sense. Yeah. And a way to just apply some of the technology right. they already have to another kind of market. It doesn't have to go gangbusters, but it could just be another little way to eke out some more uh, revenue for them. Which sort of takes us back to NASDAQ. And the conversation that we had with Adina Friedman Mm -hmm. when she was our Mm -hmm. guest on Business Week Talks, I mean, she talked about this because, to your exact point, Annie, is this idea is like, look, we got this technology. Like, we know how this works. This is ultimately a market. This is technology that we have that maybe no one else does. Mm -hmm. We're global. So... uh, why not Just do a it? lot no of upside here. There's no reason it. not to do it. Yeah. yeah. And the exchange space is interesting, too, because that's a place where you've seen um, the revenue that you can earn from just trading operations shrinking in the very right. developed stock market. So I think that's part of the reason that NASDAQ has looked for how else can we apply our technology. And that's Annie Massa, a look into Wall Street, maybe from a little bit of a different lens, a callback definitely mm-hmm. to a conversation we had a little earlier this year with the CEO of NASDAQ. And we should note, Interactive Brokers is a sponsor of Bloomberg Radio. It's iGlass frames are everywhere, and now it wants to take that success and apply it to contacts. We're talking about Warby Parker. I have the glasses. I'm not wearing them. Yes. Austin Carr has the glasses. He is wearing I them. I am wearing them. He went deep into this company. It's a fascinating story because we talked with Joel Weber, the editor mm-hmm. of Business Week, about this. This is in part a strategy story in a lot of ways because this was a company that launched a whole line of imitators in various businesses. Tell us where Warby is right now. Totally. Yeah. I mean, this was the company that sparked this, you know, crazy trend of what uh, we call direct to consumer companies. Sort of if you have Allbirds or Casper mattresses or want to order a razor online or underwear or short shorts, what have you, there's a zillion unicorns out there that have built a huge brand off of being the Warby Parker of X. And the big question for Warby Parker, uh, which has a a billion dollar plus valuation itself, was do they want to become a platform, a retail platform and sort of instead of just selling $95 glasses like the ones I'm wearing, do they want to launch into all these other verticals or double down on vision care? I'm going to make you take a step back. I'm going to assume we all know what this company is, but just remind us about what they do because they really have upended the way you sell things. Totally. I mean, just a few years ago, we were talking about the retail apocalypse and in many ways we're still uh, talking about this is the one store uh, company that sort of bucked that trend. They, uh, back in 2010, Neil Blumenthal and Dave Gilboa uh, came up with this idea to disrupt Luxottica, which was this massive of conglomerate in the eyewear space that was sort of a monopoly, uh, a lot of analysts think, when it comes to distribution they and licensing. all the eyeglass Everything. manufacturers. Ray-Ban, Sunglass yeah. Hut, Pearl Vision, what have you. And they often marked up their frames massive rates. I mean, just if you you buy Ray-Bans for a couple hundred dollars, they're, they're pretty expensive. With Warby Parker, they had one low price point of $95. Uh, it was just very straight uh, for direct consumer marketing. So they sold online, then eventually moved on uh, offline into physical retail. And they're, they've really become known for, as this sort of bespoke brand uh, that has this end-to-end customer experience that's, that's very seamless. And you've seen a lot of copycats in that trend. Well, and it is this... Sort of threading of the needle, as it were, getting toward where it feels like we are, especially high-end consumers who expect high-touch retail, 
but also the convenience that you get from online. I mean, the process of Warby Parker, it's yeah, pretty great. It, yeah. It's pretty I mean, what they became known for was this uh, at-home try-in experience. If you've ever gone to a store and you look in front of that little mirror, you know, it's self-conscious. You, you feel a little awkward doing that. They send you five pairs in the mail. You get to try them on for free, then send them back, and they send the one that you pick once you pay for it. it it's a very seamless experience. And if you've been to the stores, especially around New York, they're beautiful. They're gorgeous. They're very seamless. And it doesn't feel like a stodgy optometry office if you've right. ever had that experience of being upsold by your your doctor. And you really went right there to one of the tensions of this story, which is, okay, selling a razor online, not that complicated. Selling socks online, not that complicated. But when it comes to your eyes, it yep. is a little more complicated. <laughs> There's a whole sort of established way that people do this. Well, if totally. you screw up, you can really screw up somebody's eyes. Really, uh, yeah. There can be infections. There can be eye disease. Um, and, and, so that's a big thing. It's a much harder category to get into, but they think it's a bill, uh, an $11 billion market. The contacts category. Contacts category and eye exams. That's one of the big things that they have to push into. Because although they've done prescription eyeglasses for a while, uh, for, for many years, putting something on a piece of plastic, a piece of silicone on the end of your eye obviously is a little bit more dangerous, especially when you're ordering these things online. Uh, they're also part of a big category that Luxottica also owns, which is, mm-hmm. you know, they, they they have people that prescribe the contacts. They own iMed, which is the second largest vision insurer in the company. And they've really locked Warby Parker out of that market. You can't buy your glasses in-network through vision insurance. And so they basically said, you know, we're going to do this on our own. Instead of just glasses, we're also going to offer um, contacts and do the eye exams. They're tripling the number of optometrists they have on staff who are going to basically help you with your insurance and then hopefully, uh, you know, sell you contacts and Warby Parker glasses downstairs. One of the things you get into, though, Austin, so here they are like looking to go from glasses now to contacts, kind of build out the mm-hmm. vertical if you want. If, if you want. Um, but what's interesting is, is... You know, I think the question is, are they expanding too late? Like, are they, you know, here they created this model. And now that they're, expre- you know, spreading out, did they just wait too long to do this? I think that's a fantastic question, especially we note in the story, uh, one of their co-founders, um, Jeff Rader, actually left in the early days to launch another unicorn, which right. is Harry's, another the Warby Parker of, of, of shaving, which is has a $1.4 billion valuation, I, I think. And then a, a couple of their other executives uh, went on to fi- found Away, which is the Warby Parker of luggage, which, again, has a $1.4 billion valuation. <laughs> So it's a really good question whether or not they waited too long. At the same time, they really pitched this idea that they they don't want to chase the flash in the pan, you know, sort of uh, different verticals. A lot of the VCs that they were talking with in the early days said, oh, become the next Shoe Dazzle, become the next Groupon. And they said, you know, we're just going to be focused on this one thing. We do it mm-hmm. really well. And now we're going to expand a little bit more. And they, they pitch this as sort of the anti-WeWork. They, they don't want to be this crazy, you know, massive $100, million, $100 billion overnight soft bank investment. They want to be the mature, step-by-step, incremental growth company. Well, and I feel like that speaks to who these two guys are. You got you get into it a little bit of, of, of kind of how they manage this company, their approach. They're very, I mean, if you spend time with Neil and Dave, they're very precise. They, you know, they're as precise as the, the prescriptions in their glasses. I mean, they, they really have this attention to detail. They're not, you know, the, uh, the Adam Newman type characters that are just going to uh, sort of brag about, you know, tomorrow we're going to triple the size of this. They, one, one of the guys said, you know, we're, we're comfortable launching 33 stores this year, 40 next year, 45 the year after that. This is not, we're going to launch 500 stores tomorrow. Well, and it's also interesting to think about this business, especially this expansion into contacts and eye exams. And you alluded to this earlier, Austin, this is a people intensive business. I mean, mm-hmm. there's, in addition to the manufacturing they're doing, you know, these are big jobs, a lot yeah. of jobs in a, in a lot of ways and, and high touch. It's it's not, you know, what, what they've also been pitching is it's not just the in-store experience, but all the under the hood refinements. They have an optical lab where they do a lot of their manufacturing in upstate New York that has about 100 jobs. And they're also pushing into telemedicine, right. uh, which is a massive category that we've seen other eyewear makers move into. And that's basically the process of can you update your prescription using just your phone and a MacBook? Uh, essentially, you can measure the distance between your laptop and your phone and and you can check your eyesight doing an eye exam at home. Seems risky. I know. But that could be the future. Right. And if you and if they're, they're pitching it as not a replacement, but a complement to eye exams. Uh, some people think it's risky. A lot of the optometry community really felt this is a, a bad move uh, by the industry, but it seems to be where it's headed. That's Austin Carr. Great dive into Warby Parker, the individuals, the two co-founders behind the company. I mean, their model really impacted the retail industry overall uh, and created so many other companies in other 
other business lines. But what's interesting is, speaking of business lines, Warby Parker now wants to do contacts. Well, and this decision to go essentially vertical, Mm -hmm. staying with the eyewear industry when so many people have mimicked their model to get into all sorts of things. Klaus Selmer is back with us, the president and CEO of Porsche Cars, Porsche Cars North America, back in New York City. Hannah it is Elliott. Porsche, Jason. I know. I corrected myself. Oh, we tried. listen. Anyway, great to have you back with us. Last time you were here, we were downstairs with a car. This year, you're here for the Year Ahead event. So let's start there. What is in store for the Year Ahead in your business? Oh, it's all about the brand. Yeah. Uh, you know, in former times, Actually, products were building the brand, and now you have to define your brand, your brand purpose, and then you build the products, which is a huge shift for us in terms of product planning and in terms of communications. I love what you say about brand purpose, because a big theme of the year ahead this year is all about sustainability and companies thinking about kind of the broader impact that they are having on our world. How does that obviously work into in terms of, um, I think, about, you know, alternatives to carbon-fueled vehicles and so on and so forth? Talk to us about, though, how that plays in with what you're doing. Well, we're in the first phase, actually, of uh, a transition to battery electric vehicles. Uh, 50% of our cars sold in 2025 will have a plug, so it will have either a combustion engine or or uh, with a plug-in modules or hybrid or battery electric vehicle. So that transition is taking place as we speak. The first car is out and about. It's the Taycan. And uh, we're pretty happy about the reception here in the United States. I have to say, I'm very excited. I just had a chance to drive it. Congratulations on that car. I would love to know, why was Porsche the right company to bring out an electric sedan in the performance segment? We actually had a long discussion when we started looking at the source of business to then launch a battery electric vehicle, whether it should be what everybody looks at, which is SUVs, or whether we should stay closer to our brand heritage and have a fly line that looks more like a 911 or like a real sports car. Uh, So we decided at the end of the day, let's not look at the business potential, let's look at the brand. Let's look at what people associate with what Porsche has been known for for decades. And that's why the Taycan is actually the right car. It's a bit bigger than the 911, of course, because we need battery size and battery space in order to also fulfill our customers' expectation when it comes comes to performance, range, um, charging speed, and so on and so forth. So Klaus, when you think about the Porsche customer. Uh, How does he or she feel right now about the economy? What are they saying to you about uh, sort of how they're feeling, how they're spending as they look ahead to the next year when they come to buy a car? Well, if you look at our figures, we're in good shape. Uh, Even without the Taycan, we're uh, above previous year 6.5%, while the market is uh, slightly down. So uh, I think we've got the right strategy, the right products, the right communications, the right sales force with our U.S. dealers. Uh, so we are confident, they are confident buying into the brand, but in, we're not boiling the ocean here. We're three cars out of a thousand uh, that are sold here in the United States. Uh, so we're probably in a spot that um, we consider being fortunate. What makes sense for Porsche in terms of luxury brand doing an electric vehicle? I think if you have the right technology and if you say this car speaks Porsche, this car is DNA Porsche and the right technology is there now. We have an 800 volt system with the first manufacturer applying that to a car. We have everything we know about the chassis and the drivetrain uh, embedded in that car. And now, Hannah, you drove it. Uh, it behaves like a true sports Thumbs car. Thumbs up. Uh, thank you for that. Uh, so it's, it's the right time. Um, and uh, looking at our order intake, uh, and we're not talking numbers, uh, just before you ask me, <laughs> our order intake is, is uh, exceeding our expectations, to, to put it that way. All right, so what worries you? Because I do think about how many times we sit around the table here, Klaus, and we're talking about some of the big macro issues, whether it's U.S.-China trade or trade wars in general or a global economic slowdown of some sort. Interest like, rates. Interest rates. Like, what are we missing? What is it that you guys spend a lot of time discussing? Obviously, you want to focus on your brand, getting your message out there, getting a great vehicle out there. Um, But what else? Um, Well, for us internally, uh, it's customer experience. But let's put that aside. If we look at macroeconomics at at this point of time, now our biggest worry, of course, were were the tariff tariff discussion. That that was something that was hanging like a black cloud above us. Now, it's not gone, the cloud, but uh, it has lightened up a bit. Uh, Very recent reports show that uh, I think our messaging has arrived. uh, And I'm not talking just for Porsche. I'm also talking for our mother company, VW. They have Mm -hmm. just announced an $800 million 
investment in Chattanooga, creating another thousand jobs for battery electric vehicles that will be produced there. We've done our homework as car manufacturers in this wonderful country. We've invested billions uh, and uh, there are many thousands of people dependent uh, on, on those cars being produced here and, and even exported to other countries. So but that's because it makes business sense, correct? It, it completely makes business sense, yeah. yes, absolutely. So, you know, that's a responsibility we are very aware of and we are, we're living up to it. And I think that has now arrived with uh, the, the administration. Um, and I just hope that everybody stays calm uh, and believes in free and fair trade. And that's Klaus Zelmer back with us. He's the president and CEO of Porsche Cars North America, along with Hannah Elliott, our car mm-hmm. expert. Love catching up with them. Of course, Me the too. last time he came to see us, he brought a car. We got to sit around, play around with a car. What's interesting, too, is it you know it's more about electric vehicles and hybrids. Uh, but we also talked a little bit more broadly about the infrastructure needed to support all of this. So a great conversation. So you love it, you hate it, and if you live on the East Coast, you most likely have found yourself on the northeast quarter of Amtrak for work or pleasure at some point in time. But, and I didn't know this, Jason, there are so many more routes and thousands of miles more that make up the Amtrak long-distance network. I'm going to say it. This is my favorite story in the magazine this week. It's great. such a great tale. Devin Leonard is here with us. He wrote the story. He was on the trains. He was with the man I love that he was in on the trains. charge <laughs> of the whole enterprise right now, a plane guy turned train guy Richard Anderson running Amtrak. Uh, Devin Leonard here with us in New York City. So what was the inspiration for this to begin with? I don't know. I think Joel, I think Joel had the idea, but it, we, we knew... We Joel knew, Weber, Yeah, editor. Joel Weber. Excuse, excuse me, our beloved beloved editor. But, <laughs> but no, there, there, we, we just knew that there was controversy. People were getting upset with this guy who was a guy from the airline industry and uh, it seemed as though some people in sort of the, the, the Amtrak ecosystem, sort of train ecosystem, were sort of rejecting him. So we wanted to find out what was going on. Well, the magazine has done stories on the Northeast Corridor, right? And the problems and the infrastructure yeah. problems. Penn but, Station, yeah, yeah. exactly. But And that's actually a profitable part of the business of the Amtrak business, but you went much more broader out into the country. Yeah, I took the Crescent down to New Orleans. What is the Crescent? Uh, that's a train that leaves daily from uh, Penn Station, and it, it's, uh, it leaves in the afternoon. It's supposed to arrive, you know, kind of in, you know, in the evening uh, in New Orleans the next day, but it rarely arrives on time. I think about three quarters of the time, only about, you know, about three quarters of the time it's late, often two hours late. And uh, I wrote it and, and, and it was late, but it was kind of a wild experience. And I talked to all kinds of interesting people and why they took the train. And uh, it was it was pretty cool. So. And it's a microcosm in some ways yeah, yeah, because yeah. you go through big cities, you know, you sort of leave the Northeast yeah. Corridor that Carol was talking about and you go all the way uh, to New Orleans through, you know, Georgia, Alabama, Mississippi and, and into Louisiana. Mm-hmm. And as you say, there are different people who have sort of different relationships with with Amtrak. What did you learn? Well, I think the biggest thing, Jason, is that, you know, we all think of, I guess, I guess we just think of Amtrak as, you know, they own the trains and they own the tracks and, and, you know, end of story. But that's not, that's not the reality. The reality is, is that they own most of the Northeast Corridor from Boston to, to Washington throughout the rest of the country. They're running pretty much on freight railroad tracks and they have a very sort of difficult relationship with the freight railroads and their, their freight railroads are supposed to give them preference, pull over to the side, let Amtrak trains, uh, past, but that's not what happens most of the time, and it didn't happen on, on the Crescent when I took it. And this blew me away, and I loved the the sort of phraseology. Everybody talks about, like, the freights, right? <laughs> you know, you know, I, and, I know. And sort of this, like, this argot that, right. you know, is, right. is limited know. to, to this world. They call them the class ones in, in, in any way, but yeah. Yeah, right. so you can right. really go deep on this, right. but you're right. This has created a very tense relationship. And going back to Richard Anderson, who's now running Amtrak, this is the main thing he's really got to figure out is this right. relationship, right? Right, 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 right. Because, I mean, basically, people will take a, a train that, that that's on time. And, and, you know, that's why the Northeast Corridor you know, is very successful. Of course, there's a ton of people. It's very, you know, dense, densely populated area. Right. It, it's hard to get around on, on highways and all this stuff. But the... The, for throughout the rest of the country, well, really, these routes, they go back like 100 years, the long-distance routes. The Crescent, you know, pretty much goes back 100 years. And they were created at a time when America was a really different place. You know, of course, far fewer people. But also, say, on the Crescent, a city like Charlotte was kind of a, you know, an afterthought. It, you know, it, was, it was no big deal. The Crescent goes through there, you know, in the middle of the night. That's the only time you can catch, a, you know, trade in Charlotte. Of course, today it's the headquarters of Bank of America. It's a big right. booming city. And it's kind of ridiculous that, right. that I mean, I mean the, 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 the Crescent set up just 
end to end. You want to leave New York at, at a reasonable time, get into New Orleans at a certain time, time for dinner, of course, you know. But um, but but everything else along the way is sort of, you know, I guess it's good to get into Atlanta in the morning, maybe get into D.C. around around dinner time. But everything else is just kind of like stops on the way. And, but it, and, it speaks largely to kind of how we travel around America, right? We don't think twice. We, we just automatically get on a plane and go somewhere, even right. if it's a short hop. You know, you go over to Europe and they're using trains so much more. And I do wonder if there's a way to kind of reorient our country so that the trains are more in demand and they can be better systems. Well, Carol, that's what... Uh, Richard Anderson wants to do. And, you know, what he wants to do is Amtrak has a right of way, you know, uh, well, actually it has a right, well, it guess it is a right of way, but it is a right to, to operate trains on these freight, uh, these freight tracks because the railroads agreed to that when, you know, they turned over their passenger service to Amtrak, which is, mm-hmm. sorry, to, you know, to Amtrak, which is losing money in 2071. So what he wants to do is instead of running trains that Basically, you know, go these long distances that would be much easier to fly and cheaper at this point. He wants to segment the routes. So, so for instance, there'll be more trains in between, say, Atlanta and Charlotte, you, you know, these, these sort of urban centers that need service. And, or, you know, or, you know Atlanta and Birmingham or, you know, or something like that. These, little, these corridors. And because the, the, the routes aren't as long, there won't be as many opportunities for delay. And also, hopefully, but, but for that to work, you have to work something out with, with the freight railroads. Right. So they're not delaying the trains. But it's these shorter routes, routes between cities that, that, that are much bigger than, than they were in 1970, let alone 100 years ago when these routes were created. That, that's his vision. It's a really interesting idea. Yeah. Well, and it does speak to something that is building maybe quietly right now, which is questions around sustainability and climate and carbon footprint and all these different things and the way that we move around, less in cars and Mm -hmm. maybe less in planes, which takes us back to Richard Anderson in many ways. Very successful at Delta. Anyone who flew Delta during his tenure knows who he is because he was the guy, I'm Richard Anderson. Thanks for flying Delta. You know, he would pop up on the screen. This is a Delta Um, champion. Yeah, 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 but, you know. Delta Diamond, yeah. He was a guy who came in, the airline had gone bankrupt. He engineers the merger with Northwest Northwest, and really puts Delta on a path where it is now to be a top airline. But he didn't make a lot of friends doing that. He's not making a lot of friends doing this. Well, no, that's the thing. I mean, the unions are upset with him because of his cost-cutting. And then you have these senators from the rural parts of the country, and they're they're worried about oh if you, you know change the long distance routes, their you know their constituents are going to you know lose service you know you know as paltry as it is in these sort of little stations. I don't want to say in the middle of nowhere, but they're not they're not in, not in big cities. But you know they're very important to a small group of people, and that makes them very important to these senators. And on top of that. You have people just love trains. Yeah, yeah. And and that was really interesting to kind of talk to some of those folks. But they feel really strongly about how Amtrak should be run, and they don't want to see things changed. And some of the things that Anderson's doing, like changing the service in the dining cars, and, you know, even, you know, suggested uh, substituting bus service on part of the Southwest Chief. Right. That's people just go berserk over that. Right. Well, and it's interesting. And I do wonder about the financials, right? It's still getting, what, $2 billion in subsidies from the yeah. U.S. government, right? right. Uh, it's still operating at a loss. And I do wonder what the financial viability of this is going forward. Well, he's got a plan for that, too. <laughs> <laughs> you better. No, no. But his, but his, his plan is let's get... Amtrak, uh, you know, profitable or at least break even on an operating basis. And he's gotten it better, right? Yeah. Well, yeah, that. yeah. He's, I, I guess the, the adjusted operating loss this year was, was $30 million. That's way down. Even last year, it was $171 million. Yeah. So he's on track to break even next year in, you know, fiscal 2020. What he wants to do is then is, is take the money that they get every year from Congress and use that to fix up the system, which needs a lot of work. They're already getting new trains and, and, and doing things like that. But the idea is the idea is to show Congress that, look, we can run Amtrak, you know, efficiently and, prof- and profitably, profitably, excuse me. So now let's do something about addressing the bigger problems. And that includes the Northeast Corridor, which needs $41 billion in, you know, in sort of infrastructure repairs to because the system's crumbling at Penn Station. Forty-one and, yeah. billion dollars. Yeah. No, but it's kind of interesting, and I do wonder whether or not he can make this work ultimately. Well, that's the thing. It's the typical problem when you bring in somebody from the business world into a government agency. This is something that's happened at the Postal Service over the years yeah, too. But yeah. but people say this thing needs to be run like a business. 
and let's we let's get somebody you know you know some successful corporate executive so they bring them in but these government agencies are not businesses there's all sorts of red tape and constraints and all these different constituencies yeah yeah no it is <laughs> right. right the and government it's corporation really tough to is not oxymoron yeah 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 so the things he could do at delta and you know, you know, and despite the fact that they upset people, he could do them. You know, and if he showed that they worked, you know, people ultimately accepted them. But here, it's a much more complicated thing because, I mean, you know, as he said, testifying on the Hill to you know people who were upset with him, you know, senators like, look, you're yeah. my boss, you right. know. So, right. But whatever the term is, having all those bosses, that's not something that you know a guy like Richard Anderson is used to. So I think he's. Trying, trying to do his best. We'll see. We'll 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 see if it if it works. But this is the first time. These are. This, I think this is the first time Amtrak has had you know these sort of new ideas and this yeah. sort of I- I- innovation, you know, ever. You know, certainly not 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 in decades. And it's a really important system, and it, it needs to be changed. And you know, it's about time somebody with you know some fresh ideas was in there. That's Devin Leonard, and I always love Jason when he does a story because he actually took a train ride to get a feel of what it's like. He got to see the delays up front and personal, but he also talked to individuals why they choose trains over planes. And uh, it just tells you about some of the successes and some of the failures that is Amtrak. It's a great story and certainly worth reading at a time when everybody's traveling around the country. And that wraps up Bloomberg Business Week's weekend podcast. Thanks so much for joining us. I'm Jason Kelly. And I'm Carol Masser. Be sure to tune into Bloomberg Business Week Radio live Monday through Friday, starting at 2 p.m. Wall Street time. And if you can't catch us live, get our daily podcast. Check that out at Bloomberg.com or wherever you get your podcast. And of course, you can get this week's edition of the magazine. That is on newsstands now. We'll be back right here next week at the same time. This is Bloomberg.